Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me, as usual, is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hey, everybody. Good to be here. Love y'all. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Chomp, chomp, chomp. This is episode 77. Woo! That is a 13. 23. Away from... It's early, Mike. Math. It's early, Mike. Yeah, we're doing our, we're recording our shows a little earlier, so yeah. his brain doesn't boot into math mode until after three o'clock. Oh, I don't think it, I don't think it's ever booted into math oh, mode. Okay. So yeah, there you go. This is just it's an even worse version of my terrible math. Our friend Alan R. Warren uh, wants to give away some books. Oh, Alan. Yeah. This Alan's a hero. He is a great guy. He's actually mentoring me in the world of authorship. Oh, sweet, yes. Yeah, he's a fantastic guy, and I'm I'm actually going to be doing his show talking to Chris Hansen. You've got to be shitting me. Yeah, uh, the day after we return from CrimeCon. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. Wow. The book that he wants to give away is The Killing Game, and it's about the serial killer, Rodney Alcala, the dating game killer. Okay, And Alan was on Oxygen Network's true crime series, Mark of a Killer, about the true story of Rodney Alcala. So you can see him there. Oh, that's super awesome. So the first 24 people to email radiocub, that's radiocub with two Bs, at gmail.com, will receive a copy of his book, the Killing Game. The 24, that was a very specific number. I like how Alan's mind works. But that's what he said he wants to. Yeah. yeah. I, li- I like just, it's a good, that's a good, 24 is a good number. So email Alan at radiocub, that's cub with two Bs, at gmail.com, and you may get a copy of The Killing Game. Oh, get on it, people. Rodney Alcala is a messed up cat. Alan has been so spectacular and so kind uh, yeah. uh, with giving books to our listeners, uh, just I, I'm so, so uh, grateful. And if you've gotten one from him and you haven't yet, please review it on Amazon or Goodreads. And tweet tweet about it, everything. Just All those like kind it, of things. It's, yeah, it's, He's nice it, enough to give it to you for nothing, so. Let's reward him yeah. with uh, uh, some love. There you go. Hugs, Alan. On with the show. 
In 2003, a crime spree began in the tiny desert town of Ballarat, California. It sounds like it'd be in Russia. Ballarat. There's a Ballarat, I believe, in Europe. Well, there we go. The perpetrator eluded police for more than a year in the deserts of California and Nevada. A year after the crime spree ended, a shocked family from PEI found out it was the patriarch of the family. He'd gone missing years before. Oh, I like where this is starting. This is the story of the Ballarat Bandit. Nice ring to that. Ballarat is a ghost town in California's Mojave Desert, close to the edge of Death Valley. Death Valley is the lowest elevation in North America at 86 meters below sea level. The Earth's highest temperature ever was measured in Death Valley. On the afternoon of July 10, 1913, the ambient air temperature was a whopping 134 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's 57.7 degrees Celsius. Holy shit. Yeah, that's pretty darn hot. I don't think going outside would be a good idea at that point. No, no. Let's go out and tan. Yeah, you're going to be a fried egg probably in about five minutes. Well, 1913, was there an inside? Like, I don't think homes were invented yet, were they? Yes, they were. Oh, they were? Oh, okay. Good to know. Death Valley got its name after 13 prospectors died there during the early years of the California Gold Rush. There's little water and shade from the brutal heat is tough to find there as there are no trees. What what a what a pleasant sounding place. Death Valley. Yeah, just like no there's nothing here but heat. Hollywood has made many movies in and around Death Valley, often westerns. This includes a favorite sci-fi western that I love, Star Wars Episode 4: A New Hope. It was the perfect location for Tatooine the home planet of Jedi's Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, okay, sure. Just makes It does sound like a prime location for it. There you go. Yeah. Though inhospitable, Death Valley draws people to itself. Some come wanting to commune spiritually with the beautiful yet brutal natural desert. Others come to see the locations of their favorite films. Mm-hmm. Even Charles Manson made his home at Death Valley's Barker Ranch. This was the place his family would spend the days after the race war. Helter Skelter. <sighs> Good old Manson, jeez. Still more people come to connect with the romantic ideas of the Old West. Their heads filled with visions of cowboy heroes and gold-digging prospectors. I can understand that. Um, uh, that want. Yeah, just to get away. Yeah, you yeah. know, kind of... Uh, Simplify. Exactly. Yeah. Live off the land. I don't know how much fat there is on that land. No, um, it's sweated it all out. (laughs) Authorities and his family believed uh, it was the latter that brought the bandit there. According to his family, he loved Western movies and TV shows. He used to claim, I was born a hundred years too late. I should have been born in the Old West. Unless you were born in the Old West, then you're like, shit, I was born a hundred years too early. Yeah. In August of 2003, some tourists on a day trip with their 4x4s headed into Death Valley. They saw a short, gaunt man. He had dark, shoulder-length hair. He was sauntering around in the heat with a mangy black Labrador retriever. Concerned, the tourists called to the man to see if he was alright. The man ignored them and walked on. The group later reported the strange sighting to local authorities. 
I, can, I would imagine that would be a very odd thing to stumble across out there. Yeah. It's just a, a man looking disheveled, ignoring you. Just walking along yep. in the in the blazing heat. You're addressing said person. Hey, are you okay? Hello, sir. Just nothing. nothing. The dog was later seen wandering near Ballarat without the man. <laughs> okay. In January of 2004... The owner of the only shop in Tiny Ballarat arrived to find her store had been burgled. Around $4,000 worth of stuff was gone. The haul included food, a power inverter, magazines and books about surviving off the land, and the shop owner's quad runner was gone too. Hmm. Inyo County cops thought this would be a one-off committed by local meth heads. Over the next few weeks though, reports of more property crime poured in. From an article by Jason Kirsten in the May 2007 edition of Men's Journal, quote, Ranchers, hunters, and gold prospectors who leased cabins from the Bureau of Land Management opened their doors and found their shelves empty. Campers discovered clothes and food gone, while off-roaders were relieved of motorcycles and gasoline. He was a one-man crime wave, Jeff Hollowell, the Inyo County detective assigned to the case later said of the thief. In January alone, he committed about 30 thefts. Yeah, and so you can see there all of, all, all the thefts, everything he's taken, it's about survival. Yeah. Surviving uh, in the wilderness, like food, clothing, quads. <laughs> the, yeah, he needs to get around. Oh, well, right? yeah. And plus, they're fun. The bandit never left fingerprints and rarely left any footprints on the dusty ground, ensuring he walked and parked on rocks. Wow. He'd sneak into a place and be gone, back into the desert, long before anyone discovered his crime. This guy was no addict. He left alcohol out in the open, behind, and took only food and survival-related supplies. Exactly. He was none of the usual suspects that cops ran into. Another group camping saw the mysterious man sitting near a quad runner. It was packed high with camping equipment. The quad runner matched the description of the stolen one belonging to the Ballarat store owner. Hmm. This time, there was a better description of the bandit himself. The campers who'd run into him were four vacationing LAPD officers, but they had no idea that he was a wanted man. Mm -mm. The man was short between 5'4 and 5'7. He had shoulder-length brown hair. He had prominent cheekbones and flaming blue eyes. He was wearing a jean jacket, camo pants, and a green John Deere ball cap. I want to see flaming blue eyes. Like, what makes them flaming? Just, I guess they were bright? I guess, yeah. The officers had interacted... The officers had interacted with the sketchy and solitary man who was carrying a high-powered 30-06 rifle equipped with a scope. Mm. They'd found his behavior suspicious... Later on, they snapped a digital photo of the man at his camp when they were far enough away to feel safe doing so. Interesting. So there's a photo of him sitting at his camp that it's very digitally blurry kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. There he is. Well, and it's interesting that the officers felt uh, compelled. To yeah, do that. like they they were so kind of uh, put off by him. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Upon their return to the Ballarat area, LAPD officers contacted the local authorities. They provided cops with a photo of the man and his gear, quad runner, and rifle. Mm. 
Knowing the bandit had at least one rifle caused concern for people's safety. Yeah, absolutely, with especially with a scope on it. They finally had a location, so now was the time to go and get this guy before anyone got hurt. Yep. On January 21st, 2004, police made their move. Teams from the National Forest Service and California Highway Patrol cordoned off the roads leading to the bandits' camp. A SWAT team, loaded for bear, hopped into a Black Hawk helicopter and took off for the area. Oh, wow. Black when, Hawk, eh? Yeah. Jeez, they're not messing around. When they arrived, he was gone. The bandits' hidden camp was well-maintained and stocked. Police found other smaller camps nearby stocked with provisions and more guns. Huh. There was no sign of the man or the quad runner, nor which direction he'd gone. So he'd kind of left himself little, like, escape sites. Yes. Like, that's really fascinating. The amount of planning that went into his evading police was... Substantial. Substantial. Yeah. And they believe that he was always thinking ahead when he made a camp. Yeah, yeah, clearly. From an article on theava.com, quote, In one camp we found military maps, said Hollowell. Based on what this guy was doing, I thought he had some kind of paramilitary training. But we had no idea what he was up to. We figured he had to be wanted for something bad in order to act the way he did. End quote. Yeah, for sure. But we do see also a lot of paranoid individuals and um, doomsday preppers and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it could also just fit into that. Could. Cops spotted quad tracks two weeks later near the old Barker Ranch, Charlie Manson's haunt. Mm. The tracks went off again into the hills. Cops tracked the man to a small camp near a water source. They crept toward him, weapons at the ready. But when they are close, the man bolted. He was on foot, easily outrunning even the most fit police officers, he ran into the mountains for over five miles. Wow. Jeez. Rangers found his tracks and tried to follow, but lost him again somewhere in Death Valley. They used an aircraft equipped with FLIR, forward-looking infrared, uh -huh. to search the area for any sign of the bandit, but came up empty. So he's, he's good at being elusive. He was in the wind again, yep. yeah. Yeah, wow. On February 23rd, 2004... A rockhound was picking through specimens in the area where he'd camped overnight. He returned to the area he'd parked, and his 4x4 Subaru was gone. Oh. Thinking his belongings safe in the middle of nowhere, the geologist left his wallet, ID, and a spare set of car keys in the Subaru. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I get it. You know, you're in a location where you probably don't even see other humans, but uh, I always take my car keys. The Ballarat Bandit took advantage of the man's naivety. Yep. After this, there were no more burglaries in the area. Cops figured they'd chased him off with their massive searches. He was gone. Mm. This is when the legend of the Ballarat Bandit started to form. Who and where the heck was this guy, and why was he taking such precautions to remain on the lam? Great question. There had to be more to this story than burglary. Police worried. They were dealing with a sophisticated criminal who knew how to live off the land. The speculation about his identity started in earnest. He was good at evading them, really good. Area police had never seen anyone like him before. Yeah, yeah. One cop was quoted as saying, Whoever he is, he knows exactly what he's doing. 
he spends a lot of time thinking about his next move. Yeah, absolutely he does, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's very, very well planned for many different situations, it seems like. The rumors and crazy ideas were flying. Even message boards and bloggers had picked up the story. As we all know, once the wackos online get a hold of a story, there tend to be some creative theories that emerge. No. Well. I don't know what you're talking about. We are some online wackos. (laughs) (laughs) Offline wackos. Fair enough. Multi-lined wackos. We're all the line wackos. (laughs) Maybe this guy was ex-special forces. He could be a real-life John J. Rambo luring a small-town police force to his doom for not leaving him alone to live in the wilderness. Well, there's a lot of, uh, every once in a while you hear about these kind of uh, criminals. Yeah. And yeah, they, they could, in some regard, they're uh, endearing to a lot of people. Yeah, you, you stick it to the man and mm-hmm. survive off the, you know, you're not hurting anybody. You're just taking supplies and stuff. Like, so they, a lot of people can kind of think of them as these, uh, anti-heroes kind of. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what this guy is really. Yeah. Perhaps he was a serial killer though who'd taken up residence in Death Valley to avoid capture when the cops got too close on his home turf. Well, that's a little more scary. Two weeks after the Subaru was stolen, east of Death Valley, in Nye County, Nevada, local ranchers began reporting break-ins. The M.O. was exactly the same. Weapons, food, and vehicles were missing, and alcohol was left behind. Just survival. The bandit had simply moved his operation out of one jurisdiction into another. Around March 8, 2004, the Ballarat bandit burglarized a ranch belonging to Donald Jackson in Nye County, Nevada. From Jason Kirsten's Men's Journal article, quote, Jackson returned from a trip to find that his tractor battery was missing along with some gasoline, cans of food, and oddly his daughter's little red wagon. The next day, Jackson and his father-in-law, Joe Fellini, began following the tracks through open country. It was amazing, says Fellini. We kept expecting to find that wagon, mile after mile, but the tracks just went on. That son of a bitch must have had 120 pounds behind him, and he pulled it like nothing. To slow down potential trackers, the thief even added a mile of, quote, false sign. He crossed Highway 6 and headed south then carried the wagon and battery back to its original course west. End quote. He really didn't want to get caught. Uh, you know, for a second there, I was really hoping the man just loves a red wagon. It's not, not just for hauling purposes. It wasn't just utilitarian. He's, he's, a big, he's a wagon fan. Even though it's sort of benign, stealing a little red wagon. Imagine what goes through that little girl's head. I'm like, I'm trying to, like, make it seem funny. And now you go, like, with sad kids. Well, the reason I said that is because I remember my cousin, who is now a professor in the University of Waterloo, and he might be listening to this. Their house was burgled in Halifax in Clayton Park many years ago. And the guys took a whole bunch of things. And one of the things they took was a pack of matches from on the mantelpiece. Oh. And my cousin, being just a youngster at the time, I think he was, like, eight or nine. Yeah. He said to his dad, I wonder if they're going to come back and burn the house down with the matches. Oh. Because he was so so afraid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wet red wagon. On seeing the level of sophistication that the thief was using to evade capture, Jackson and his father-in-law thought better of a direct confrontation. They returned home and called the Nye County Sheriff's Office to report the theft. Yeah, I think that's always the right move. 
Nye County sheriffs headed out to see if they could track the thief. Just off Route 6 and State Route 375, near another ghost town called Warm Springs, Nevada, in a secluded spot in the valley, cops found a camp and a Subaru. How many camps and Subarus could there be out there? They ran the plates on the Subaru and it came back as stolen. They were also notified that the suspect in the theft was considered armed and dangerous by Inyo County, California, where the car had gone missing. The Subaru's hood was up and the tractor battery had been used in a futile attempt to get the car going. Yeah, I would imagine uh, tractors and automobiles require very different batteries. In my battery expertise, Inside the car, as well as more supplies, cops found at least 14 rifles with lots of ammunition. Oh shit. Cops looked around and realized this guy could be watching them from the hills surrounding the valley. Rather than get sniped, police left the area to plan a safer mode of capture. Yeah, well again, dude's got a scoped rifle. So yeah. Investigators decided they needed to trap this guy in the area. There was no way he'd be escaping in one direction at least. There was a 9,000-foot mountain blocking him. They were sure that they'd get him. That's pretty tall. They wanted to come at him from all sides, trapping him with his back against this mountain. Yeah, but, uh, you know, my thinking is this guy's pretty resourceful. The next morning, a canine unit accompanying a SWAT team of five men descended on the camp. They found tracks leading away from the encampment and headed toward the very mountain they assumed would be too high to climb. Searchers lost the bandit's trail high on the peak in the winter snow. That is, yeah, talk about resourceful. This guy's getting away. For the next 48 hours, searchers and the bandit played cat and mouse with the mouse always winning. They'd see tracks and follow to find that they were false trails. The bandit had outsmarted them. They had not seen him in the flesh once. Wow. From Jason Kirsten's Men's Journal article, on the third morning, a call came in that a Toyota truck owned by an oil refinery in the town of Eagle Springs had been stolen. The theft was classic Ballarat Bandit. He'd hotwired it, then cleverly used a nearby can of kerosene to dissolve the company decals from the door. When police plotted the Bandit's latest position on the map, they were dumbstruck. He had covered 60 miles in two days. Shit. Wow. Over a mountain. Yeah. On foot. On foot. That's pretty ridiculous. Later on, they even found homemade trail markers used by the bandit to plan out his escape routes. This guy was serious business. Yeah, no kidding. It's pretty impressive, to be honest with you. Yeah. I don't like saying, you know, like, yay, criminal, but, man, there's something about his elusiveness. It's petty criminal. Yeah. If you think about it, like, everything that he's doing is property crime. No one is being hurt, even though he has guns. Yeah. No one's been hurt. But I, but that does create a very heightened sense of fear around the sparse community and stuff. So it's still like it's still a, not a good thing. But yeah, there's something that's kind of in my head. I'm like, you run, man. Yeah. But what are the cops thinking? Um, uh, not hey, you run, man. Exactly. We'll take a break. Police don't like being outmaneuvered so deftly. Oh, no kidding, yeah. In fact, they hate it. We, You see on these shows like Cops and the To Serve and Protect and the now rebranded as You're Under Arrest. Yes, I, yeah. 
when police are chasing somebody, they get very, very focused on what they're doing. And it's a natural thing to get wound up about it. Well, in, in, in many regards, it's a competition. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the criminal uh, is trying to win by escaping and the officer is trying to win by capturing. And so you to lose that situation over and over yeah and so over. as as an officer you're going that's going to take a hit to your pride yeah i get it like i can understand why it would be a kick in the junk yeah as 9-11 was only three years in the past thoughts of terrorism began to come to mind oh interesting okay these are yeah. red states too yeah, remember yeah. that well not california so much but nevada can be yeah maybe this guy was a well-trained al-qaeda terrorist who'd infiltrated the area and was planning an attack on the military installations nearby. Now just bear with me. Okay, I'll bear. One of the camps had been near Nellis Air Force Base, contained within the top secret Area 51. <laughs> it is rumored that in Area 51, U.S. officials test not only their own latest technology, but also keep and are reverse engineering alien technology captured from various UFOs over the years. One of those craft is said to have come from the 1947 Roswell, New Mexico incident. I want to believe. Ballarat, California itself is close to the China Lake Naval Air Weapons Station, another top secret base. Mm. So what's this guy doing? Yeah. Yeah. He's bouncing back and forth between these uh, different very important military bases. Is he a spy or a terrorist? The cops are unsure. I, you know, those both sound pretty pushing the edge of uh, what's possible, but I can understand, especially during that time. Yeah. That would be something you have to explore. Right. People's radar were up yeah, about yeah. terrorism at the time, especially, yeah. you know, only in the years following 9-11. But this is not how it, uh, a typical spy or terrorist operate, but I can absolutely gather his level of sophistication led them to believe that this might be what he's up to. Well, he, his sophistication in his planning and escape, but not a lot of sophistication in his, um, I don't want to say stealthiness, but they were always able to locate his camps and tracks and stuff like that. And so... Uh, but what's he up to? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> aliens. The aliens. At this point, police decided that they would involve the Department of Homeland Security, informing the feds of what was going on across at least two states in the western USA and close to these military bases. Yeah, okay, sure. Yep. A 50-person task force was formed to catch the bandit. Wow. Homeland Security was taking the threat seriously and provided resources and people to Nye County Sheriff's DeMeo. Hmm. The Bureau of Land Management the Department of Fish and Game, the FBI, and soldiers from the National Guard were sent to assist in the search for the Ballarat Bandit. Shit, eh? Wow. The National Guard contribution of soldiers also came along with the use of a Black Hawk helicopter for the manhunt. Oh, I'd like a Black Hawk helicopter. Me too. I want to hunt for somebody in a Black Hawk. I just want to fly it around, man. Yeah. Even with all the people out looking for him, turning over every rock and looking in every hiding place imaginable, they could not find the bandit. Man, he's elusive. He even brazenly drove the stolen Toyota right past searchers at one point who had no idea Jeez. that it was him. Man, this guy. Yep. Right? 
He went to Hunts County and stole a Ford pickup from a barn belonging to a Vegas attorney. After hotwiring the truck, the bandit made a ramp and wheeled a quadrunner, also on the property, into the bed of the truck. The bandit then slithered through a tiny window that measured 10 by 14 inches and raided the ranch house for provisions. He got another gun, fuel, food, and other camping equipment, leaving the booze where it sat. Yeah, this man doesn't like booze. According to the homeowner, it appeared the bandit had rested in one of the beds, remaking it after a brief nap, leaving the rest of the house neat as a pin. Yeah, I'd immediately wash those sheets. Well, he wasn't a violent guy. Like, he didn't come in, tear your house apart. He would just take what he needed and go. Oh, no, I know, but a man living in the wilderness probably's a bit rank. Oh, for sure. You know, so like, I, yeah. a bath. Yeah, those, those, I would, those sheets would be getting a prompt washing. After three more weeks of wild goose chase, there was a sighting of the Ballarat Bandit. From Jason Kirsten's Men's Journal article, quote, By March 24, the Bandit had indeed crossed into the next county, Eureka, where a cattle rancher came across him camping in a field. The rancher helped him fix a flat tire on the Ford and then offered him some food and alcohol, which he gratefully accepted. According to a report the rancher gave to the FBI later, the pair found common ground in their mutual dislike of the government. And the rancher got the distinct impression the man he would later learn was the Ballarat Bandit wasn't used to alcohol. The Bandit passed out after a couple of drinks and then took off the next morning. Almost two months later, without even realizing it, the Bandit would steal a truck belonging to the rancher's son. End quote. Wow. Yeah, so I'm just picturing these two fellas in hey, goddamn government. Yeah. Taking our cows. Exactly, pretty much. In June 2004, the bandit made it to another county, Washoe. On a tip from another rancher, police found the pickup belonging to the Vegas attorney shot full of holes there. Oh. The bandit most likely executed it in frustration when it became immovable, stuck in the mud. He seemed to be heading north. I think we can all relate to that. There are many a times where I've wanted to I wanted to shoot the hell out of inanimate objects like I goddamn computers like like Elvis with TVs. Exactly. That's not like that's not a psychopathic thing to do. Look, if I've got if I've got a firearm and I'm way out in the middle of nowhere and I'm pissed off at something, I'm going to probably shoot it, be it a, be it a tree, exactly. you know, uh, a fence. Yeah. yeah it, just, it's a, it wasn't a person. It no. was just a truck. And, and, and yeah, no, I would, I would shoot the hell out of stuff. The manhunt was on in yet another county with more SWAT, National Guard, and this time three helicopters. Some officers were on horseback, the bandit was always one step ahead and covered at least 20 miles a day, now on another stolen ATV. This man's going distance. He can really, he can really cover a lot of territory in a, in a short time span. The bandit then suddenly turned back south, making for Death Valley once more. On July 22nd, an old yellow Chevy flatbed truck that was presumed stolen by the bandit in Winnemucca was spotted off the road near Johnson Canyon. Camping gear lay nearby. Two planks led off the back of the flatbed as though an ATV had been driven off it. Searching the cab of the truck, in the oppressive desert heat, the attending officer found ID belonging to the geologist who had his Subaru stolen months before, as well as a 22 rifle. 
Hmm. Having been involved in the first search, the officer knew exactly whose encampment he'd stumbled onto. Yeah. His heart was pounding, and he was looking around, feeling like he was being watched. He probably was. Yeah. Neither his cell phone nor radio had reception. He'd have to head back towards civilization to get a signal to call for backup. Mm. Oh, wow. Looking over his shoulder, the officer disabled the engine of the Chevy. Okay, so he just made sure that he can't use it to escape. Exactly. Yeah, I gotcha. Realizing you don't have any communication for backup. Yeah. And you're around this individual. I can... It'd be scary. It'd be creepy. Because you don't know what he's going to do. Even though he hasn't... The best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. Yep. He hasn't hurt anybody yet, but you've got, he's got guns. You've got a, a, a man who has a fear of government and civilization yep. Yep. Uh, who you may have cornered, and yep. he has firearms. You should be, always be afraid in that situation. Sure. Before leaving, the police officer noticed something under the odd under before leaving, the police officer noticed something odd under the truck. There was a group of buckets there. Pulling them out, he found each one contained tiny marijuana plants, seven in total. Wow, why under the truck? Is that like a good growing place? Well, it's out of the sun, right? But I don't I don't I understand. Guess. I don't I'm not know. a marijuana grower, so I don't know. Oh, you're not? No. Oh shit. After, What's going on in your basement then, right? After leaving, calling for backup, and coming back minutes later, the officer found new ATV tracks leading away from the site. The bandit led police on another chase, this time for 70 miles across the San Bernardino County line. He'd given them the slip again. It sounds exhausting being this guy. Yes, it had to be exhausting for him, for you, sure. You would, you would, yeah, you would think one of the benefits to uh, being a recluse... Uh, living on your own and off the fat of the line, you would think one of the benefits would be like lots of chill time. Yeah, but he didn't have a lot because the police were chasing him around. They wouldn't leave him alone. Yeah, like that, I'd be frustrated. I'd be like, I just want to rest, man. Like, yeah. Jesus, guys. The bandit left his ATV, which had run out of gas, at a new campsite. He began walking with a red gas can, probably hoping he'd find a motorist willing to share or a car to siphon fuel from. Mm. A Bureau of Land Management ranger saw a disheveled man with a gas can on Route 127 by the side of the road near a call box. He drove right past, but something about the man nagged at him. The officer turned around and drove the 50 kilometers back to the call box, but the man was gone. Boot prints led off into the hilly desert. So what, a call box, I'm assuming that's kind of like a, a middle phone. Of, middle of nowhere, a phone An emergency box. phone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. The officer was sure he'd seen the Ballarat bandit and felt like a heel for letting him slip through his fingers. The officer called for backup. On that hot, sunny Sunday afternoon at around 2 p.m., in a wash 15 feet deep and about 300 yards from the main road, a tent was spotted from the air. AR-15s at the ready, suspecting they might have a gunfight on their hands, five Bureau of Land Management Rangers crept toward the encampment. Uh, probably quite a oh, terrifying few moments leading up to yeah. heading in there. Yeah. One of the officers broke off to flank the site and get a better look. Sure enough, sitting under a tarp for shade that he'd hung from the ATV was the man that they come to call the Ballarat Bandit. Mm. Rangers got within 10 meters and yelled, Police! 
The man didn't move much, just enough to reveal a rifle, and the fact that he'd been sitting there naked. And as one ranger yelled, he's got a gun, there was a muffled crack of a rifle shot. All was still. Oh, okay. The rangers made their way carefully to the campsite, yelling as they came, but knowing what they were about to find. There he was, the Ballarat bandit, 22 at his side, naked as a jaybird, blue eyes wide open, staring at the sky. Blood was leaking out of the self-inflicted gunshot wound to his head, quickly being sopped up by the hot dry ground. Probably too tired to run another step, the Ballarat bandit had died by suicide. Oh shit, that's pretty, that's pretty sad actually. Dental work, impressions, and x-rays were taken, as were fingerprints and DNA samples. Police were desperate to find the identity of the Ballarat bandit, so his body could be turned over to his family, presuming he had anyone to claim him. Well, and I would imagine also kind of like get his story, figure out why yeah, is this man... they wanted to know him. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There was no match in the massive integrated automated fingerprint identification system in the U.S., which uses prints from databases all over the country. Mm-hmm. All other nationwide biometric database searches, including DNA, came up empty. Wow. The Ballarat Bandit was as much an enigma in death as he was in life. Yeah, no kidding. The Ballarat Bandit became John Doe number 39-04 in Interpol's database. After over a year in refrigeration, the Ballarat Bandit was buried, nameless, in a potter's field grave in San Bernardino County, near the coroner's office. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, I guess clearly um, he has no previous um, serious crimes. Or, or crimes, arrests, or anything like that. So that would just make this even more fascinating. In the U.S. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. In October 2005... An anonymous email came to investigators. It went like this. Who talks like an American, looks like an American, acts like an American, but isn't American? A Canadian. Maybe the bandit was a Canadian. Maybe the RCMP might be able to provide some more help. Inter- interesting. At the end, that an was anon- the end of the email. An and anonymous. it was anonymous. Yep. Oh, it was worth a shot, and the hunch paid off. After four months of back and forth, the Ballarat Bandit was identified by fingerprints in the Canadian system as George Robert Johnston. Okay. Well, let's see. He was a Canadian after all, but he was no killer, nor was he a terrorist, and he was not known to be violent. But he did have a record. I'm so curious. George Robert Johnston, robbed to his friends and family, was born on tiny Prince Edward Island in 1954, and he'd lived in Charlottetown and the small community of Eldon close by. He'd been almost 50 years old when he'd led the cops on a year-long manhunt across multiple states. Wow. In PEI, Patricia Johnson, Johnston's mother, and widow of a World War II veteran who'd stormed the Juneau Beach on D-Day, was heartbroken. She was bewildered by what had transpired, leading to her son's death. This is so fascinating. So were Johnston's wife and four teenage daughters, now living in Souk, B.C., where Rob had disappeared. So he had a wife and four daughters? Yeah. Oh, what? Johnston's wife was named Tommy, and she spells her name T-O-M-M-I and with a lowercase t. He met her when she was just 19, and Rob was 31 in Oshawa, Ontario. 
He was a motorcycle riding drywaller, and Tommy was an exotic dancer for a particular well-known international motorcycle club. And that's what we'll say about that. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah. Even though Rob was only 5'6", Tommy was 6'2", she was smitten with Johnston. Tommy said he had eyes as blue as Windex. Six foot two exotic dancer. Yep. Quote, he was polite, quiet, and eerily respectful when everyone else was running around drunk and grabby. Tommy said in a Pahrump Valley Times article, he was intelligent, well-traveled, had a pocket full of money, and the bluest eyes I'd ever seen. So, yeah, I mean, drywalling isn't the most lucrative trade. It's a good living, but I'm assuming he just lived so sparsely. Yeah. And didn't, wasn't buying, like, so he just, he, just accumulating money. Johnston told Tommy she'd never have to dance again, and she believed him. Hmm. Sounds like a good guy. Yep. The pair cleaned up their appearance and ran away with Tommy's eldest son, fathered by another man. They crossed the U.S.-Canada border and made their way to Arizona where Johnston had fantasized about living. Things didn't go well for them there. Yeah. After a brief stint living in a rented house, drywalling for under-the-table cash, an argument with a neighbor over a dog sent them packing into their RV. Uh. Having absconded across a border with a child they didn't have full custody of, the two needed to stay off the radar of the authorities taking cash-only work. Yeah, it makes sense, yeah. Johnson's distrust of people kept them solitary most of the time. They didn't talk to other people unless 100% necessary. Rob claimed that the government and religions were, according to the article in the Pahrump Valley Times, quote, mechanisms to trap and enslave the working man. The timeless refrain of many a rebel. Yeah, yeah, classic. Rob began talking about the approach of the end times. He said the more outside society they were, the better they'd fare. Oh, okay, so pretty much a doomsday prepper mentality. But not extremely so. Well, uh, yeah. Well, uh, I guess, but yeah. Well, that's pretty, that's, I'd say like running away from everything. and That's pretty yeah, extreme. That's pretty extreme. <laughs> Rob had spent a little time with some survivalists in Arizona who taught him, quote, some stuff about living off the land, shooting, and eating snakes. But that was it. Could being a rugged Canadian have something to do with his amazing outdoorsmanship? Maybe. We're all lumberjacks capable of wrestling moose and bear unarmed, in case you didn't know. I did it just before the show. There you go. Mm -hmm. Tommy was now pregnant. She was sequestered in their RV while Johnston went out to work doing drywall. In the Pahrump Valley Times article, Tommy said that Rob Johnston, quote, was my only source of information on anything at that point. No TV, no outside contact, no newspapers. He could have said Jesus had landed on a jet plane and I wouldn't have known the difference. The first daughter, Clara, was born in that RV without any medical assistance. Oh, wow. They began to move around, but not before the father of Tommy's first son caught up to them and the boy was taken away from them. Oh. Tommy had yet another daughter, Megan, while they were living in Florida and quickly became pregnant a third time. Wanting more for her children, Tommy begged for the family to move back to Canada. Daughter Catherine was born in B.C. Oh. The family had settled in a log cabin on Anarchist Mountain in Osoyoos, just above the Washington state border. Okay. So... Anarchist Mountain. Yeah, right. Great, great name for this individual. Yeah. So this is their third 
That was their third child? Their third daughter, yep. God, they, weren't, they weren't using Jimmy hats, were they? No. Johnston kept to his idea of living off the grid. Quote, we had solar and windmill power, Tommy recalled. The girls began homeschooling and learning how to shoot. We grew our own food, had no phone, no TV. We had horses and fun, and that was about it. Rob was the first adult that caught my imagination. He told me things, big things, about life and God and death and music and Billings, Montana and Carlos Castaneda. He talked about Armageddon and conspiracies, Tommy said. He was fascinated by Jim Morrison and the doors and often talked about the concept of breaking through to the other side. Although not religious, Rob also feared what he called the wrath of God. Stealing was out of character for him. Perhaps this thought might have played a part in his own later suicide. Mm. He may have been acting out God's wrath on himself for having been a thief. We'll never know what he was thinking. I can, I can understand that, though, or see that. Rob had begun to cultivate marijuana in greenhouses that were underground on their property. He grew enough to sell, and the proceeds would help the family get through lean times. Interesting, right? Yeah, I mean, at that time as well, though, that was... Yeah, here in BC, not a big deal. Yeah, yeah, and not, not wholly uncommon. No, and using it to make some extra money. Yep. Rob, Tommy, and their other three daughters welcomed a fourth daughter to the family, Tessa. Oh. At that time, Tommy fell ill with leukemia. She found Rob's weed helped her with her symptoms. Rob used Tommy's illness to justify ramping up his operations significantly, but Tommy was worried. It sounds like a pretty big operation. Well, the family moved back to PEI and bought 32 hectares of land. Okay. In Rosebury, uh, a farming community about 40 kilometers west of Charlottetown. The land was mostly forest, which was perfect for what Rob had in mind, growing a lot of weed. <laughs> okay. Rob continued growing weed in the forest on his land. His first crop brought him $100,000, and it was good weed with an average 28% THC content blowing away the Canadian average of 10%. So what what year was this roughly? This was in the mid-1990s. Oh, shit, okay. Rob had learned a ton from his early forays into the weed business in BC, and we all know that BC Bud is the it, best bud. It's regarded as top shelf. The last weed I ever smoked was from BC. Yeah. And it crippled me. <laughs> yeah, we, we have, we're well known. We're well known for our uh, marijuana. <laughs> yeah. Rob had even talked about Death Valley being the perfect place to grow weed in an abandoned mine shaft. Perhaps there's an operation of his waiting to be found by unsuspecting prospectors. <laughs> it also explains why he typically set up around ghost towns. There is always an old gold mine nearby. That's so true. But I, I, I to me, it seems odd that uh, he would be thinking of Death Valley as a perfect place to grow weed. I'm just thinking. But of, away what? from everything in an old gold mine. I'm just trying to think, like, it wouldn't water be very sparse we don't know what was going on in true mine, yeah true. but he did have marijuana plants under the truck that when yeah. he was found yeah so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting right mm -hmm. tommy was fearful that rob was going to get busted he promised her he wouldn't he asked her to marry him saying that his next crop would be his last they got married 
but wedded bliss was not going to last. The whole operation in PEI was spoiled when a neighbor's pig wandered onto Johnston's land and into the woods. The pig's owner followed the escapee onto Rob Johnston's land and stumbled onto what was at the time the largest weed crop ever grown in Prince Edward Island. Holy shit. So when you first started that and you're like, the neighbor's pig wandered onto his land, I'm thinking, how big is this pig? Did it eat all his weed? No. (laughs) I don't know if it ate any. It'd be stone pig if it did. My God. So, wow, the large, at that time, the largest weed crop, eh? Listen to this. Wow. The neighbor ratted Rob out. Shithead neighbor. Boo, neighbor. RCMP, well, this is where all the trouble starts for him, right? When he gets ratted out. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's living a rebel's life up to this point. For sure. You know, and but he hasn't hurt anybody. He's just grown some weed, which, you know, in B.C., probably his wife even says in B.C. it would have been okay, but not okay in Eastern Canada. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, even still, even still, like, it was illegal. You were not allowed to have grow-ups. But it's not like, you know, people were looked at as necessarily even thought of as criminals in a lot of people's In lives. British Columbia. In British Columbia. In Nova Scotia, yes. you get caught with a joint. You're, they'll throw you in the back of the cop car and really? put you in the tank. Yes, yeah, stupid. Really? After he was ratted out, RCMP seized 3,754 marijuana plants Worth an estimated $5 million. Sweet baby Jesus. Wow. All of their property was seized, and as the land was also in Tommy's name, she was arrested. The four girls became wards of Child Protective Services. Oh, shit. George Robert Johnston was held without bail and threatened with a 12-year prison sentence. Ah. <sighs> I know. Tommy was still ill with leukemia, and the kids were with the province. Things would get worse if Rob didn't cooperate, which he did. Mm. Charges against Tommy were dropped, and the kids were eventually returned to her. Rob Johnson was sentenced in 1997 to two four-year concurrent bits for possession and cultivating marijuana for the purpose of trafficking. Yeah, I really struggle with... If that were today, yeah. Well, he'd be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Currently, with, yeah. It, with it being legal, but it's This just, whole thing probably wouldn't have happened. It, yeah, I, I just struggle hearing about individuals incarcerated due to weed. Well, it And gets, this is a grand scale. I, I, I get it, but I just struggle with... We have liquor stores. We have all... You know, you, there's other yep. things you can buy legally, but that... And I don't, I don't even smoke weed or anything, but mm. it's just... I, I, yeah, it kicks me in the junk hearing about uh, like a family torn apart and everything. I get it was illegal, but uh, well, anyways. it gets worse for Rob. Ah. In jail and having trouble sleeping, Rob was administered antipsychotics. When Tommy visited, she saw a broken man who barely resembled the one who'd been sentenced. Hmm. He was a mess and crying. Tommy had only ever seen Rob cry one single time during their 13-year relationship. Now he blubbered all the time. Hmm. Rob's emotional problems continued after his release two years after he was incarcerated. He was unable to care for his family, he couldn't contribute, and this bothered him greatly. Tommy would find Rob hiding from the world at a closet now and then, picking through his beard. Jeez. This is when they all moved to Souk, B.C. Which is beautiful. Souk is beautiful, yeah. In 2000, George Robert Johnson was tired of living the way he was. He talked often about being a failure and a disappointment, 
but Tommy and the girl still loved him. The last day his family ever saw him, he was off to see a faith healer in the States saying, maybe God will take a special interest in me. Hmm. How sad. Yeah, very. What he did in the period between 2000 and his emergence in California in late 2003 is unknown. Wow. His, yeah, a couple of years. Yep. His crimes and ultimate demise are a matter of record. In 2011, still grieving her husband, Tommy hinted that perhaps Rob Johnson had not taken his own life, that, quote, a 22 was not his style. Again, we'll probably never know. Yeah, you know, and I think as uh, when it comes down to somebody you love, you're going to want to not believe that they've taken their lives. Like, I understand. Yeah. And that's it for this week's case. I'd been waiting for a long time to tell this interesting story. How did this one come across you? Uh, I just was searching for a... interesting stories yeah. uh, about Canadians who may have committed crimes in other countries. It's a really fascinating one and kind of, you know, quite sad um, yeah. because he committed illegal acts, yeah. but nothing in my mind that should have led to his death, be it self-inflicted or not, you know, it, it's... Uh, it's just a sad tale. All it looks like his incarceration and stuff really just uh, that's what did broke, a lot of psychological it damage broke him, to yeah. him. Yeah, the yeah. feeling of being a failure probably probably just spiraled into depression. Yep, and and uh, the fact that he's um, away from his family for a number of years, like these four little yeah. girls who he probably just loved and wanted to take care of, and. He's treated like a piece of crap in prison. Well, and, and now, like, I understand mental illness incredibly well, um, but I do struggle, though, with uh, him taking off, leaving his family. That's something that I don't, uh, you know. Here's the thing. What if in his mind... He was going to go make a big grow somewhere. Well, and I'm sure that was. Like, I'm sure he wasn't like, fuck this, I'm leaving my family. I'm sure yeah. it was, uh, you know, like, I'm going to go do this so I can get better. But just, yeah, just abandoning your kids for years, no matter the age and, and your wife, like, that, that is something where I struggle with. Because it's tough, it, yeah. It's tough. I'm thinking about those poor kids, you know, but... Uh, but I mean, overall, as a case, it's really yeah. That's really, it's just sad that it came to the to the to his death. I mean, I'm sure if it was my house being burgled or 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 a camp or cabin, I you know I probably wouldn't be. He could have got himself killed. Yeah, and I, I probably wouldn't be thinking as fondly about him. But um, it's just a tragic one. Come the end of it, it's just a sad, tragic tale. Yeah. Yeah, and those poor poor kids living now with uh, that their legacy when all they want is, is they the just love of their, their dad. dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before we go, we want to give some shout outs to our Patreon patrons. This week's good eggs are Trina Phillips from Gibson's BC. Oh, beautiful Gibson's BC. Over there on the Sunshine Coast. And what was filmed in B in Gibson's BC? Uh, the Beachcombers. That's right. Yeah. Molly's Reach is still yeah. there. Is it really? Yes, it I, is. I went there as a kid. Like, uh, I can remember we used to camp out there a lot. And uh, yeah, I remember us going by just to see the building. Cool. Yeah. Chelsea from F Lake Forest, Illinois. Oh, cool. Lake hey. Forest. That sounds like a fine place. It sounds lovely. 
Lindsay White. We're not sure where Lindsay's from. Uh, you know, though, don't you? Uh, clearly. Okay. Yeah, Dana White's uh, sister, Dana White, the okay. UFC president. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Dana White's sister. Well, there you go. Yeah. She's a lovely woman. Does she work in the UFC? She doesn't. But she, she has a black belt in jiu-jitsu, though. She doesn't. She works for KFC. <laughs> I know, right? Well, they, it was imperative that there be an FC continuing in right, the family I gotcha. lineage, and so that was the next logical step. So they're both in the FC industry. I have to spend an entire weekend with you. Yeah, I know. Lucky you. Uh well. <laughs> You're going to love it. David Fryer from East Carbon, Utah. Oh. We see that fella in the Yumber Yard. Yeah. Rose Gallego from Edwardsville, Kansas. Oh, very cool. Do you know Dorothy? She lived in Kansas. <laughs> Christine Black from London, Ontario. Ah, a Londoner, Ontarian. Ontarians. Amy Phillips from Great Sankey in Great Britain. I'll tell you this. It okay. is it is great. It is there's two great places. Yeah, it's just double great. <laughs> so much greatness. Jesse Kinneyberg from Ottawa, Ontario. Hey, Jesse? Fantastic. Andrew Strauss from Canberra. Oh, Canberra, Australia. Waterbox. Waterbox. Hello, nice. Yeah. You're not a nice you're not a lady. Is you're a not a Sheila. It's a bit hot out. Let's go for a dip in the waterbox. No. Every time. Every time. Charlotte Grissom. There is one man whose name was Grissom who I used to really dig. Yeah. His name was Gus Grissom, and he died in a fire in one of the Apollo fires. And I wonder if Charlotte might be related to Gus Grissom. How many Grissoms can there be? I'm thinking like two. (laughs) There may be. So clearly. So was was Gus your great uncle or grandpa or... Would that be a grunkle? It, uh, it would be sad if he was because he's no longer with us, but uh, well. he died a hero in my opinion. Yeah. But. Yeah, so your your great uncle, your grunkle is a hero. There you go. I hope we, I hope that's not true. <laughs> Diana Helgeson, and she is from Norfolk, Virginia. Hey, Diana. Stacy Menard, she's from Lockport, New York. Oh, New York in the house. And, oh, here we go. <laughs> Samantha Sovagao. Sovagao. It does look like Sovago or Sovagao. Oh, I'm leaving this Sovagao. in your hands. I'm leaving this in your hands. Oh, well, Samantha is from a place I can pronounce, Chilliwack. Chilliwack. Yep. British Columbia. Yeah, about an hour drive from here. Gone, gone, gone. She's been gone so long. She's been gone, gone, gone so long. Yep. <laughs> We used to call it Tallywhack as well. (laughs) Did you? Yep. Not well. You're not well. And we had a PayPal donation from Rima Asif. Oh, sweet. And she says, buy us more poutine. And my friend, Kim P, handed me 20 bucks this week and said, have some donuts on me. So that's what bought our breakfast. So thank you. Yeah. So thanks, Kim P. Kimpy. Kimpy. <laughs> Kimpy. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, I forgot what I was doing. That Did you ever ha- do that? N- yep. Okay. Yep. Way more often than I'd like to admit. 
Thanks so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. People, I don't know if they know, but we do have an after show for some of our Patreon yeah. subscribers. Five dollars and five dollars a month and more you'll hear here and after show. So if you're if you're It's not another episode though. It's not. It's just us uh, being buffoons. Yeah. So if you like our buffoonery. Yeah. Throw five bucks in there a month and uh, there's a lot of episodes there. We do it weekly. So if you're you yeah. know, caught up and you're looking it's like for fifty some, now. Is it really? Hey, yeah, shit. It's like fifty. Episodes. So if you're, yeah, if you're, if you're all caught up or near caught up, and you need more money, there you go. Scott, I come sh- on, I should chill that more on. Uh, we, yeah, we really should. On our pages, we really should because uh, it's a lot of entertainment there. There you go. If you don't already, it mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. Mm-hmm. You can easily find us on iTunes, podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or wherever else you get your on-demand audio. Check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please give us a like or follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And the more Instagram followers we can get, apparently, the better it is. So follow, 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 follow. If you don't, yeah, follow, like, follow, follow, like, follow, like. Like, follow? Follow? Like, totally follow, dude. Yeah, just search for Dark Poutine and you'll find us. And then like and follow. Most importantly, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Yes. Join us in our closed Facebook groups, the Umberyard, the Barnyard, and the Craft Barn. And these are uh, a bunch of wackadoos in there that we have fun with. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The Craft Barn and the in the uh, Barnyard, it, the people love it. And feel free to leave us a voicemail. Love to hear from you. The phone number for the show can be found on darkpoutine.com's contact page. You might just hear yourself in a future show. Seriously. You guys should do it. We want you to do it. Yeah, be hilarious. Tell us to go shit in our hat. If that's all you have to say, then just do it. Do it. Say, hey, this is so-and-so from such-and-such a place. Go shit in your hat. Yeah, do it. Or something else creative. Wouldn't it be fun to just like one day listen to the show and you hear you on there? Saying go, would, go shit in your hat? That, that would be so great. You could share it with everybody. You could tell your friends to go shit. If you have a friend that you want to tell, go shit in your hat. Oh, I like it's. It's like the old- We uh, will be your message service. It's like the old uh, radio request. Like, uh, I'd like to dedicate wanna, this song to my, Susan. My boyfriend, Damien. Yeah. I think that he's got the prettiest eyes <laughs> and he's got the greatest bun. <laughs> but our version would be, hey, Brian, go shit in your hat. <laughs> <laughs> do it. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Please do it. Yep. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg, not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. It's your